Hi, I'm Lona Maseka from South Africa, a celebrity TV chef and member of the Chef's Manifesto. In 2015, world leaders agreed to 17 sustainable development goals, goals that have the power to create a better world by 2030, by ending poverty, fighting inequality, and addressing the urgency of climate change. Good food is a foundation for everything, providing the energy needed to fight for this better future for everyone. Everyone, everywhere. Without good food, no other progress is possible. Good food begins with farmers, it's nutritious and saves lives. It powers people and economies. Good food is also vulnerable to disruption and not always a choice. Good food makes progress possible and is about love, love of flavor, health and celebration, love of people and the planet, love of your neighbor and 7 billion others we do not personally know. Good Food makes progress possible. To find out more, follow at goodfoodforall underscore SDG2 on Instagram. Share with us what good food means to you and what you're doing to contribute to Good Food for All. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is, is life. life. Hello and welcome to the second season of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, Tom Hunt a specialist in zero waste plant-led climate cuisine and author of the new book, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. For those of you who are new to our channel, The Chef's Manifesto is a network of more than 700 chefs from 77 countries, taking a lead on sustainability, working together to create change, connecting the dots between you, your food and nature through our food system. We believe chefs are at the heart of our local and global food systems and that whenever we cook, we can create a powerful narrative. In the last season, we covered each of the eight thematic areas of the Chef's Manifesto Action Plan. Those include the protection of biodiversity, reducing waste, highlighting plant-based ingredients, investing in livelihoods, respecting the earth and its oceans, amongst others. Throughout the season, we met a host of great chefs and experts from around the world to talk about their work on driving sustainability in their kitchens. If you haven't listened to it yet, please do go and check it out now. And don't forget to subscribe on your preferred platform so that you will never have to miss another episode of our podcast again. Given the current challenges faced by the hospitality industry across the world, we, in this new four-episode season, explore how COVID-19 has affected people all over the world. In today's episode, we look at the big picture and create an overview of the pandemic, looking at how our food, restaurants and industries are transforming. In episode two, we look at food production from field to fork. I'll be talking with progressive chef Christina Bauerman from Italy, famous chef Bella Gill from Brazil, and others about the importance of agroecology as a way to help reduce the risk of future pandemics. Episode three asks the question, how has COVID-19 exposed inequalities within our food system? And how can chefs and restaurants 
contribute towards a more equitable world. Amongst others, Professor Karina Hawkes, Director of the Centre for Food Policy at City University London, brings us insight into how COVID-19 has changed the way we think about food, food value chains and inequality. In episode four, we look at our future together with eight global chefs' voices. We will take a closer look at how restaurants are reopening and what challenges and opportunities lie ahead. So let's turn to today's guests. I'll be speaking with Indian chef Radhika Kandawal, who helped crystallise the sustainability movement in New Delhi. We will discuss how supporting biodiversity can not only protect nature, but become part of a resilient system that has helped her and other chefs through these challenging times. We will also hear from David Nabarro, the World Health Organization Director General's COVID-19 Special Envoy. David gives us real insight into his work at the WHO and highlights the parallels within our own sustainable practices as chefs. Now let's begin. To kick off this brand new series, we've invited Chef Dipanka Kozler, co-owner of Halma in Bangkok, Thailand, Asia's first urban farm restaurant, to talk to us about his experiences of the pandemic. In this, the first conversation of our new series, we discuss not only how DK has coped during lockdown, but how he has flourished helping others, including his staff, producers and local community. Dipanka is a glowing example of our values here at the Chef's Manifesto, demonstrating how to protect biodiversity, invest in livelihoods and facilitate people's access to affordable food. DK, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Such a pleasure. Um, so you're a man after my own heart with your core focus on closed loop cooking and food sustainability. Yes. And your food looks totally out of this world, by Thank the way. You. Thank you. Um, so you're, you're creating new sustainable food experiences that educate diners through their environment. That is correct, yes. And um, setting a global standard for a new type of restaurant that cares about people, planet and our future. So... What I want to know is what's driving you to push the envelope and innovate in such a progressive way? Uh, honestly, Tom, uh, when I first started the restaurant three years ago, just before that, I quit my job at a, as the executive chef of a, of a 300-room hotel here in Bangkok. And I uh, got myself in a food truck and I traveled across uh, the Golden Triangle in that food truck uh, that's uh, Thailand, Laos and Cambodia in the search of looking for ingredients and experiences. And uh, uh, once, whilst I was on that journey, even with the truck, I was uh, running a 100% sustainable food truck that was running on pressurized natural gas. I was doing black and gray water recycle. I was doing all of my composting while driving around three different countries. Uh, the idea was to be able to get out of uh, corporate cooking and be able to drive a cooking platform that would then take away that myth from the mind of the diners and the chefs that sustainable cooking has to be boring or sustainability is expensive. And then with no investors, with the whatever I'd saved out of driving the truck, I started uh, a restaurant, Haoma, uh, building slowly brick by brick, uh, uh, growing pot by growing pot today, growing over 35 different varieties of produce, conserving 200,000 liters of rainwater and growing 1,500 fish on the premises of the restaurant and cooking the food that you see. Pretty and Instagrammable as they like it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. It sounds like we've got a similar journey in some respects. I set up a festival cafe touring around doing street food myself back in the day. Amazing. And that, again, that was, you know, in a way, that's a, it is a sustainable world. Um, And it, yeah, it's led to, yeah, working in this kind of sector. But I guess, yeah, it's, what's interesting is um, how, you've created a whole farm around your diners, which is just remarkable. And what I feel like is that somehow this approach that you've taken is a very resilient approach that has allowed you maybe to adapt to the new environment that we have found ourselves in. And um, for the last time since we we started the operation, we've always been propagating that, uh, gorgeous food sold at restaurants that are sitting right on the top does not have to be uh, doesn't have to sell produce that doesn't grow from the region man you know I come from India I come from I, I was raised in delicious food being cooked by my mom and my grandmother well, I come from a very small town I had no idea about what imported produce was we had seen no imported produce uh, till I was like say 17 years old till I first left my city or as a matter of fact, I come from a town which banned use of single-use plastic in the year 2000, 20 years ago. And uh, basic stuff that uh, I, I saw when I grew up. So this kind of setup that you see in my backyard is exactly like what it is in our small town in India. And when we would sit down for dinner on the dinner table, mom would ask us to go fetch some tomatoes and some chili and some coriander and she would whip up a salad, for which would then come on the dining table. So I've done, this is not trendy for me. This is just going back to my traditions. This is who I am, where I come from. And Tom, you, me, just like our parents and our forefathers, deserve to eat clean, eat fresh. And so do our children and every diner that comes to our restaurant. So why should I use a tomato that's coming from Netherlands and is 14 days old? And why wouldn't I use a tomato that's coming from 200 kilometers away from me or 100 kilometers away from me? Or why wouldn't I use the mint, coriander, basil, uh, borage that I'm growing in my own backyard? So that is the challenge that I gave myself sitting in a market that thrives on imports, sitting in or say our neighbors, Singapore, 97 percent of their produce comes from outside of their borders and because of the limited landmass. But Thailand has such a a beautiful landscape, has beautiful landmass. It's got the hills. It's got the mountains. It's got the plains. I have I think. The only reason why somebody would not cook locally or sustainably is laziness. It's easy to procure 6.7 pH tomatoes from Netherlands, but it's really hard to find them and find the right producer and speak to them and ask them to give you the consistent product every day. So all of the stages, most of the people try to skip. And in the name of consistency, in the name of delivering the same products every day, I, uh, they, they uh, hinder the, the growth of the environment, the nurturing of Mother Earth. So I think at Hauma, we're absolutely inverse of that. We want to give ourselves the challenge of growing top-class food, making it look top-class, taste, taste top-class, and still be ethical. And uh, yeah, and, and that is how I drive Hauma. And we are, to answer your first question of what really drives me is uh, my love for Mother Earth, I think. My love for nature. That's what drives me every single day to be able to run a restaurant like this. And so growing a lot of your own food must have made you particularly resilient. But what I'm interested in is how the pandemic has affected the food system in Thailand. 
um, and what other challenges you might have faced. I'll give you a small example, Tom. Uh, Songkran is the New Year's for Thailand. It's on the 13th, 14th and 15th of April. That's the time of the year when maximum amount of tourists come to the country. That's where everybody splurges, enjoys that week-long celebration and fiesta. So the farmers across the country, with no idea what was in store for them in the last week of March, were growing tremendous amount of produce. The lands were ripe. The fruits were ripening up. The produce was mature, already transplanted, hardened, ready to be sent to the restaurants. And suddenly, on the 23rd of March, everything shuts down. The country goes into a lockdown. Every restaurant, including us, was asked to shut down. And in what what does the farmer do? So I, the farm that I work with, my partner farm, the, the, the farm that we've closely built in Chiang Mai, I spoke to them and they said to me that if this produce that's growing in the farm in the lands at the moment, if we don't harvest this, it's going to rot and it's going to nitrify the soil. And there would be so much nitrogen in the soil that we wouldn't be able to grow when the seasons come back or when the pandemic goes away. And we stepped up and helped one or two or say three farms. But how about the other 29,000 farms in Thailand? So what we did in the times of pandemic was our, our restaurant was shut and we turned the restaurant into a temple kitchen. So we started doing community meals. Until today, we've done over 45,000 community meals, which are made with ingredients that these farmers were otherwise going to throw away or were going to rot. And we started cooking meals every day, 300 meals, 500 meals, going up to 700 meals a day, giving it out to people who needed them, people who had lost their jobs in the industry and around. And that's how we fought our the biggest challenge of how do we keep the farmer in business? Because when we do reopen tomorrow, the city officially opens back to 100%. Will this farmer still be there if we didn't help him three months ago? So that was the and that was and our answer was to start a community kitchen wonderful and is that the launch of the no one hungry campaign that is correct on 22nd of march uh, the city shut down we first delivered our no one hungry meals on the 25th of march and we are doing that till today every single day around 100 kilos of food is going out of the kitchen uh, serving around 400 people every single day wow so your reaction really was to look at how you could not only just save your restaurant but save your wider food community farms your staff but also whilst feeding uh other people that really were in real difficulty because of the pandemic that's that's how we thought about it we we reached out to most of our regulars our patrons we've got people who believe in us we spoke to them we started a simple go get funding program on which people patrons especially contributed to us uh, uh, and and we went out to them if you see the first video that we posted on the 23rd of march on our instagram we said people that we want to keep our staff we don't want to add to the unemployment so through what we raised in donations, we paid our staff a basic salary to survive, rest, and then these migrant workers who are working with us started cooking for all of those migrant workers who had lost their jobs. And then we slowly started increasing this to anybody who needed food. And we posted on our pages saying, we, we started getting random calls saying, we are a family of 10, we need some food. They're like, okay, please come over. The, the, the food will be given to you at the gates of the restaurant. And the basic idea that uh, in India, we say that 
it's a saying, it's a traditional saying by the grandmothers in the houses. They say that no matter what happens, flood, storm or avalanche, the the fire in the stove should not go out. And that's what we decided, that the fire in our stoves in the kitchen should not go out in whichever way we could. And no one hungry was the answer. Yeah, yeah. So inspiring. Um, And so what does the restaurant look like now? You've been reopened for a little while. Have you had to make any changes to the way that you procure food or to ensure safety of your customers in the restaurant? Um, What's different? Uh, we already had a very spacious restaurant, Tom, and uh, we, we we are in the business of quality. So we try to restrict the number of diners that we can, then our farms can support. So we were never looking at filling up the seats in the restaurant by, by numbers. We were looking at quality guests who believe in our approach, who believe in what we do. And uh, now we, uh, in, uh, in, a, in an evening of dinner, we just sit down, not, not, not more than 25 guests in the restaurant. And uh, we have ample, we have a couple of meters space between all of the tables. We are uh, doing the temperature checks and providing the guests with sanitizers on their arrival, keeping a bottle of sanitizer on the table. Constantly, every 30 minutes, our, our bathrooms or our, our men's room and the ladies' room is clean, completely sanitized. All the surfaces are done. Uh, the staff and uh, all, all of the employees are wearing masks and gloves at all of the times. It's not just about... Uh, it, it It was something largely that we were already doing as a part because we are a HACCP certified restaurant and we were already taking care of everything uh, that, that mattered in hazard analysis, critical control points. But uh, we just stepped up a little bit further just to ensure that all of our guests also have the confidence because I honestly believe that uh, if if you were coming to my restaurant and you would feel a little bit more comfortable if I was wearing a mask, I would not shy away from it. We're in the business of serving people and uh, we serve them which with in, in whichever way they feel most comfortable. Yeah. And because you were able to care for your farms and and staff, they were they were there. You didn't have a deficit of produce or the a need to rebuild day. systems. Uh, the supplies were coming in every single week, they, just as usual. Our supply chain never stopped. Uh, the uh, the inter province, like our farm, is up in the Chiang, uh, in the Chiang Mai province, and we are down in in Bangkok, around five hundred kilometers away. So in the mirror, there were some restrictions on travel. Like uh, instead of daily travels, they, they became bi- bi-weekly travels. So we, we still started, we managed our procurement otherwise. And we kept procuring and uh, the supply chain was constant. So the day we opened doors, we were business as usual. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And so are there any new opportunities or what's, has, has anything changed? Is there a new normal? I mean... In, in the UK, it's things are slowly kind of returning to normal in some way, but it's all still so uncertain. Uh, it's pretty much the same over here. As you know, China just went into a second wave and Beijing is locked down again. Things are uncertain, but as far as if you, uh, if, if you ask me about the new normal, I think we pretty much fit into our old is still the new normal. But a lot of restaurants who were not taking all of those precautions, who are not following HACCP, who are not following the hygiene and sanitation guidelines, it would. I, I, I see this as a silver lining, Tom. I see that our entire industry is going to step up their hygiene game. And all of our guests are going to step up their hygiene game. And it is only for the betterment of the society. And uh, well, uh, I, I know a lot of people have been troubled. A lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of people are crippling economically. But... Uh, 
there is nothing, uh, there is no use of, of, of crying over spilt milk now. We'd rather look towards the horizon and start moving in that direction and uh, have faith that things will come back to normal and, and God is a merciful God. We will definitely be back where we were before or even better and more hygienic. <laughs> yeah. So have other restaurants been struggling within Bangkok or? Yes, there, there have been. Unfortunately, there have been uh, some casualties uh, of restaurants, uh, Tom. Uh, some of our friends and uh, uh, brothers and sisters have uh, not been able to survive the storm. And uh, uh, I just wish the best for them. You know, I just wish uh, that uh, God's give, God gives them strength to be able to come back to their feet. And uh, whatever we can do, we, we if anybody needs our help, we, we have our arms wide open to go and help them with whatever we can. Brilliant. And um, I just wanted to ask before we finish up, is there any way that are you still fundraising and can our listeners donate? Absolutely. We still are fundraising. We have another fundraising drive that we're doing this coming week. And uh, we uh, so uh, uh, what we are now within our team planning is that no one hungry uh, is was uh, was something that COVID drove us to, and now it's something that hunger will keep going because COVID is not the only cause of hunger. There's a lot of hunger in this world. There is a lot of uh, there's over sixty thousand homeless people in Bangkok city. So whatever we can do, we will keep. Uh, the no one hungry alive we will keep this community kitchen going and uh, with god's blessings and with the help of all of our patrons and the people who are listening to us today with basic contributions that we can get we would be able to feed whoever we can our vision is not to uh, eradicate hunger our vision is to give anybody who uh, wants food give them food that's wonderful and um so where do i need to go to donate uh, we have a go get funding page. Uh, the link to that is on our Instagram. That is Haoma Bangkok. We also have a uh, we also have a program. Uh, we also have a, uh, the details on our website Haoma.dk. If you go to our website, you can see uh, an entire link that says "No One Hungry," which gives you an entire detail of what communities we are feeding, what is cost. For example, I give you a very basic example. Uh, one one pound is fifty baht. And if you donated 10 pounds, we would be able to give away 35 people dinner because that is the cost of the meals here. The, so a basic contribution of $10 or 10 euros or 10 pounds gives 35 smiles that, that, that very night. Well, Deepanko, I know that I will be donating. Thank you so much for joining us on the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Real inspiration. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure, Tom. And I'm uh, very grateful you gave us uh, at home at this platform to speak to the people. And uh, I hope that I, I wish to everybody out there in the UK and every chef, restaurant and other businesses in the world. May God be kind and may you be back on your feet as soon as possible. And I'll return the sentiment. Thank you, Dipanka. Bye-bye. It was a pleasure speaking with you, mate. Thank you. Radhika Kandawal is a chef and co-owner of the Delhi restaurants Ivy and Bean and Fig and Maple. Her work in food waste and biodiversity has helped make her a global voice in food sustainability. The arrival of her restaurant Fig and Maple in Delhi marked the beginning of a new movement in sustainability there which has influenced a number of chefs across the city. Her kitchen is well known for playing host to indigenous ingredients like black chacao rice, lotus stems, and a wide variety of seasonal greens that are used in her salads. 
In today's conversation, we will discuss her restaurant's COVID story. She tells us how they have managed to cope and even thrive during these difficult times while supporting her farming community. Radhika also talks about the importance of reducing food waste, especially now during these challenging times. Chef Radhika, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be able to chat with you. Thank you, Chef. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to know, in a nutshell, really, if that's even possible, your experience of closing and reopening your restaurants during the pandemic. Um, it is. It, it was a really, really tough time for us, but I feel like the way we innovated and uh, I'm going to borrow one of your words here, the way we showed re- resilience um, really, really kind of um, showed grit and uh, this kind of support we got was insane as far as the community was concerned. So um, resilience, Chef's Manifesto Action Point 2, protection of biodiversity is clearly a core part of your sustainability practices. Biodiversity to me signifies resilience. Has being a member of the Chef's, Chef's Manifesto, along with your strong sustainability practices, helped you through these challenging times at all? Um, absolutely. Uh, so what the Chef Manifesto actually enabled me to do was uh, advocate and educate even during these really, really tough times. Uh, I've never been one for monoculture or cash crops, but uh, at this point of time, I think we uh, went through such a period as far as food insecurity was concerned that even those were hard to get to some people. So, um, yeah, we kept advocating for, for using whatever is available. And I feel like biodiversity for me as well means resilience, but it also means community. And um, if uh, we can, you know, just come back stronger, we will be able and use the resources we have. And, you know, as far as biodiversity is concerned, we have enough. We just need to start using it. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting that you mention uh, commu- the importance of community as well, and that it has helped the Chef's Manifesto has helped you to continue to advocate for these issues. And that just reminds me about our responsibility as chefs, as people who are in a position that are able to help other people, that we really do have a responsibility to to be advocating these changes and it's amazing that you've had the bandwidth really to be able to do that during these during such challenging times but i'd love to move on to the next question which is what have your experiences been like working with farmers in particular in india throughout the pandemic and now as restaurants start to reopen so i think my experience was a similar struggle to what the farmers were actually going through it was to having to find independent solutions. There was no institutional support given in India. Um, in fact, at the very beginning of the lockdown, it got really, really bad where borders were sealed. Um, the, there was so much systematic gap, um, especially as far as logistics or food preservation or transport was concerned, um, especially when they started sealing the borders. So, uh, so even if crops and produce were considered essential, um, there, were, there was packaging which was considered non-essential. So farmers could harvest, but they, could, they had nowhere to send their produce because they couldn't package it. So there, was, there were these sort of small gaps in the system where there was just no way of 
you know the 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 food system was broken however there were hyper local farmers who we worked with and who we have been working with in the past um and um, we highlighted their produce tried to curate boxes and recipes for them so they could instead of reaching a business reach the end consumer by advocating for them um so we kind of bridged the gap between farmer and consumer amazing and that is really you've hit the nail on the head kind of what our, i think our roles as chefs should be is that connection um Absolutely. and as yeah and as the chef's manifesto points out you're really celebrating local and seasonal food even through these difficult times um and i think that in a way i've seen that happen all over the world yeah yeah so are there any i'd love to know what other ways you might have seen the food system in india struggling or even coping well within the pandemic uh, so you know what happened was that there was since i already told you the institutional support which was given was so tiny that um, i think farmers were really really struggling during the uh, and uh, what happened with india especially was the harvest season was on when the lockdown happened so even things like cash crops were wasted there was no export there was no import so but, but what what that what that did do was um chef tom that it enabled us to eat locally there was no other way of eating there was no import there was no export you had no choice you had to and uh, i guess because of the financial crunch i'm i'm just talking about the positives over here um i think people started consuming more consciously and uh, started focusing on wasting less and uh, using all parts of their produce and uh, really just making an a conscious effort to even figure out where their food was coming from and for me i think that is a really really important thing absolutely and actually that leads really nicely onto our next question you're obviously very passionate about food waste which is one of our eight thematic areas how can chefs in india and beyond educate consumers to avoid waste in the kitchen and importantly really why is this so significant now during covid-19 and for the future um so i believe that for chefs have to educate themselves on produce how to preserve how to use root to shoot familiarize yourself with uh, what is around you there is so much there's so much diversity of crop that we ourselves do not even know what is edible what is not so i feel like the first step has to be educating yourself um secondly i feel like your message has to be a value based message which needs a strong strategy to propagate it the strategy has to be centered around something um, the message it has to be a constantly visible message so like day to day tips uh, how to use root to shoot highlighting local seasonal ingredients uh, letting people know what parts are edible what is not talking to your farmer that really really helps for me zero waste has always made sense it's been part of the indian culinary heritage so you can just say this is like rebellion with a cause it's it's a creative yeah. challenge <laughs> it's preservation of tradition it's maximizing on economic efficiency which is where we come to your second part of the question why is it so important right now yes there there is 
such an economic crunch at this point of time again we go back to um people consuming more consciously people actually uh spending time with their family when you spend time with your family you will already know that there's been a culture there has been food traditions of preserving of using to to shoot of eating uh, bone to tail so exactly. i feel like you know there there is you're getting a bang for your buck um, and as you know chef 33% of household waste is generated due to throwing out perfectly edible parts of produce the planet's population is going to increase and we need to ensure that we are making enough food and if if we keep wasting that's not going to happen there is already enough to feed everyone yet there are so many going hungry absolutely there is, there is nothing victorious about hurting the planet or hurting the people no and that what a powerful message to end on radika thank you so much for coming on the podcast i've learned a lot and i'm certainly inspired also i just wanted to mention i've i'm as a recipe writer as a root to fruit or root to shoot recipe writer i've um taken a lot of inspiration from indian cuisine and indian root shoot cuisine using radish leaves and and beetroot leaves and different dals and things like that it's really quite um natural it seems it within indian cooking a chef in um in our country there's um there's one part called nagaland they have over 168 types of ferments and this has been wow. in the culinary heritage since forever it's the so we we basically have to look inwards speak to people just embrace our own culinary knowledge absolutely thank you so much radika see you soon thank you chef our next guest dr david nabaro has been working in global nutrition health and sustainability since the early 80s amongst other impressive roles dr nabaro is now co-director and chair of global health at the institute of global health innovation at imperial college london and strategic director of the swiss based social enterprise 4sd training and mentoring leaders for sustainable development since june 2018 david has curated the food systems dialogues as a contribution to the transformation of food systems involving more than 1700 leaders in 29 locations within the last 18 months most recently Dr Nabaro has been appointed special envoy of WHO Director General on COVID-19 for preparedness and response. David's holistic vision on tackling the crisis and its solutions are both reassuring and inspiring. David talks about the many positive responses to the crisis and we discuss how the pandemic has affected both the whole food system and the hospitality industry as a whole. David's work demonstrates how each aspect of the chef's manifesto is a powerful mechanism for the hospitality industry during such challenging times and how embodying them into our own practices can help with an equitable recovery for all. It's an immense pleasure to have you here. David, welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Thank you very much indeed and it's lovely to be with you. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Um So I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about your role as a WHO special envoy on COVID-19 and what that entails. Uh, I've been working in public health for about 45 years. And during that time I've either worked as a doctor 
in local clinics and hospitals or for governments, a little bit for business, and then quite a lot of the time recently for the United Nations. And I think that during the years, I've learned that whenever we're dealing with big health challenges, we also have to look beyond health at, for example, the food people eat or the houses where they live or the water they can access or whether they've got sanitation. Because in the end, health is influenced by so many different variables. And so although I'm a public health doctor, I've also become somebody who works outside health with a view to trying to make sure that people do live healthier and happier and more fulfilling lives, but do it because they are looked after by systems other than hospitals and health services. Now, over the years, I have been working on infectious diseases, on nasty outbreaks like Ebola or different influenza epidemics and pandemics. And because of that, I've got a reputation for somebody who can bring different people together and get them to work on these tricky issues. Uh, and then uh, recently, uh, when the WHO was getting concerned about COVID, the new virus that's causing the current pandemic, uh, I was asked to join the Director General as an advisor and then as an envoy. The request came at the end of January, and since then, I've been amplifying the WHO's guidance around the world so that people know what it is that the organisation feels is important. I've been interpreting that guidance. What does it actually mean in different places? What does it mean for people working in government, in civil society, in business, in different countries around the world? And then I've been accompanying the people who make difficult decisions. You know, when they're trying to work out, should they reopen schools? Or what should they do about health uh, food systems that are not working to full effectiveness? I'm accompanying them as they try to work out the best decisions. And then I feed back to the WHO. I've been doing this on and off since the end of January. I've been really busy uh, because every single community in every single country is really dealing with some tr tricky issues but it, it's what I've been doing. Um, and, and I'm very, very keen, actually, to talk with you more about different aspects of this work. Wonderful. It's, it's so reassuring to hear that you're taking such a holistic approach yeah. and really considering all aspects of this and not just, yeah, the how to deal with the symptoms, of course. Um, but I've just been reading a few of your articles, uh, one in particular on 4SD, I love yeah. very much, 10 COVID learning points. Point one is lockdown is an opportunity to pause and collectively make sense of the world we're in. Listeners, we'll put a link in below. But David, what are your top three lessons learned from your work in response to the pandemic? And how has this experience been for you? Thanks a lot. Well, so my first thing is that this is a, a disease that is spread through the way we behave. And so that means that our collective behaviour is going to determine whether or not we are facing a increasing or continuing threats as a result of the disease. And so we have to have people right at the centre 
of thinking this through. Now, different groups of people have different experiences. Wealthy people are easily able to adapt their lives so that they can keep themselves free of the disease and also so they can keep others free. But supposing you're poor, supposing you can't choose the conditions under which you work, you can't choose uh, whether or not you take can take time off from your work because if you did, you'd just lose your wealth and lose your security. Supposing you can't choose where you live, you have to live in a very densely populated place, then it's a different deal. And I suppose for me, trying to make sure that I focus on people but also think through the conditions under which people live has been very important. Secondly, trying to make sure that we look at not just the health aspects, but all the other aspects of the disease, particularly the way it impacts on households, on women and children, the way it impacts on people who work in different occupations, all the time trying to look at it in the holistic sense. And thirdly, the absolute need for people to work together when they're in leadership positions. You know, it doesn't make sense to me if you've got the leader of one country and the leader of a next-door neighbour all adopting very different approaches. They ought to be synchronising and working through how they're going to deal with the issues together. So joint action is absolutely key. So first thing is put people at the centre. Secondly, look at it, health and other things at the same time. And thirdly, could leaders please work together on dealing with this challenge? Absolutely. And it's wonderful to hear about the top level approaches that you're taking. I'm wondering as we speak as well, how we can bring this into the hospitality industry and the food system at large as well. Um, as lockdowns ease around the world, of course, with, as you were describing, this disease being spread by behavioural patterns and and uh, cult different cultural interpretations of the rules set out by the WHO and others. Um, it's so important that we do um, reopen in, in a very kind of cautious manner. Um, but internationally speaking, how would you describe the impact of the pandemic on the hospitality industry and the global food system on a more general level? Firstly, I think that the pandemic has had a massive influence on people's ability to access the food they need for good nutrition and health, as well as on producers and their ability to market their produce. So very quickly after the uh, pandemic started to spread into poorer countries, we had rumours coming in that I think have subsequently been proven that there's been a, a big increase in the numbers of poor and the numbers of hungry and the numbers who are potentially malnourished. And secondly, we found all sorts of reports of farmers not being able to sell their produce, particularly perishable produce. So the supply chains were not working and people were not getting the food they need. They still aren't. Uh, at the same time, uh, the, the producers are, are, are in difficulty. So we're saying shorten the supply chains, link together producers and consumers through short-circuiting using, uh, if possible, uh, WhatsApp groups or, or uh, new kind of apps that enable the producers to be in contact with the consumers. Uh, then make certain that non-governmental organisations are properly funded because they get to poor people. Uh, thirdly, make sure that if smallholder farmers and others who are small-scale producers 
go into debt, that they get support through that and, if necessary, forgiveness. And then make sure that if they are producing perishable food, that there are warehouses at local level into which their produce can be put for store because you, you don't want stuff to go rotten all the time. It's all in the bigger umbrella of saying we want food systems to be more resilient and less easily disrupted by a, a major phenomenon like this. So that's our main food systems finding out of this. And then I just want to add to it that we are seeing also that if you don't pay attention to food systems, the levels of hunger and malnutrition increase. And so it's really important to recognize, firstly, that food systems are threatened, and secondly, that that can impact. Now, lastly, I want to stress that in order to help communities better handle this virus, we have had a lot of situations where movement restrictions have been introduced. One of the industries that's worst affected by this is hospitality, the tourism sector, the travel sector, and all the uh, informal economy operations that are associated with this particular sector. So I'm very, very keen that people everywhere should be mindful that this sector is being badly affected by the situations that we're having as a result of COVID. We must look out for the people whose, uh, whose livelihoods depend on the hospitality sector suddenly finding themselves that they're made especially poor. Indeed. And although there's real struggles through um, through this in terms of food distribution, throughout the lockdown, many people across the world have connected more to their food and in different ways that they haven't done in the past. I was wondering if you had any examples through this of any positive changes to the food system and also using this momentum, what reforms are needed to ensure unhealthy food is not the most affordable option? And what role can chefs play in bringing about such change? So I've done a lot of work in the last few months on what COVID means for communities. And the one thing I'm seeing is that communities everywhere are recognising that by coming together and dealing with the issue together on behalf of everybody with a particular focus on the poor, that this can make a huge difference. COVID reveals some of the fragilities and weaknesses in our systems everywhere. And so that revealing is leading to an awful lot of change. Uh, we should all feel very excited about this. Uh, we tend to hear about political difficulties and fallouts, and these are what tends to get amplified in the media. But I'm seeing all sorts of really positive signs by businesses, by civil society, by governments, by small enterprises and large enterprises, by farmers and fishers and uh, local authorities. It's just the most wonderful outpouring of energy. Don't be put off by all the negative stuff about this leader or that leader or the other leader. Yes, it's hugely important that we've got leaders that are not doing that sort of well on dealing with their COVID. But what we have got is numerous people in society everywhere stepping up and showing what a lot they've got to contribute. And the, the chefs are fabulous people because they're entrepreneurs. They're entrepreneurs with taste, with smell, with texture, with linking together what you can create through food with joy for the individual, linking together what you can create through food with income earning opportunities, often for producers. And so the chef becomes a catalyst 
of incredible transformation. So I'm seeing this real energy in communities. I'm seeing the catalytic potential of chefs. And as a result of this, the, the opportunities for excitement around food to be leading to innovative changes. Now, that's good. But I also want chefs to be active on another thing, which is helping everybody to understand that it's up to us how we defend ourselves against this virus. It's up to us to be strong. It's up to us to be able to hold the virus at bay. And so could chefs also be helping to actually get a consciousness among communities everywhere that it is individuals who are going to make the difference. It's not actually going to be governments who make the difference. It's the people themselves. And if the chefs could be also catalyzing action by people, that would be absolutely great. David, that's such a powerful um, group of statements. It's been enlightening and inspiring to talk to you. And I'm sure our listeners will gain a lot from it too. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for giving me the time. Lovely to be with you. Thank you very much indeed. Chefs across the world have faced and are still facing countless challenges. We hope to be able to contribute in some small way through sharing these stories here on the Chef's Manifesto podcast. And that's all for this first episode. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Please subscribe, rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. We want to talk to and engage with as many chefs as we can around the world to talk sustainability and strengthen our global movement of the chefs at the forefront of change. See you next when we talk with Christina Bauman in Italy and Bella Gill in Brazil about how the food we cook and eat gets to our plates and how we, as chefs, can all be a power for good during these transformative times. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduced waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. (laughs)